Our mission is to grasp God's vision for our lives. And we've talked to, we've been talking a little bit about this and um, I wanted to dive in and talk with you a little bit about something that I read this last week. See if you can, what you think about this. And I'd like for us to start off with a little bit of a dialogue and here's what it is. Christians are called to think differently. Okay, Christians are called to think differently about the direction of their lives or the direction of our lives. We're called to think differently about the direction of our lives. Even so, it's easy for us to drift through life, responding to situations as they arise, but never quite grasping our divine destiny by the neck and walking into it with reality. We end up settling for plan B or even further down the alphabet because plan A, God's plan that is, seems like a wonderful yet unrealistic ideal which we have neither the talent nor the energy to achieve. So we settle for less. This is not God's will for our lives. He operates without a plan B. Plan A is perfect. As G.K. Chesterton said, the Christian faith has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Speak to that. Anybody have anything to say about that? Yeah, great question. Right. How do you how do you navigate through the fact that you do have that in scripture that you show each end of the continuum where Jesus says my burden is light, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And then you also find out that there obviously is a very strong theological truth in the scripture about the fact that Jesus lived a suffering life. We do as well. Learning to be content in all circumstances. The concept here that I wanted to ask about as well is what does it look like to grasp our divine destiny? How do we do that like, like tomorrow? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay. So could it be a part of the divine destiny be surrender? Yeah, I think so. Because what stands in the way is your will. Mm-hmm. Versus what God wants to do. So you want to work hard and you want to get to 55 and retire and the kids are out of the house and then you can go where you want and do what you want and you and your wife will be happy forever and you'll die at 85 happy and content. But that may not be God's will. <laughs> Brother, take the microphone here. Go ahead. <laughs> good. I hope it's longer than 55. I'm, creep, I'm creeping on that number. Good grief. The idea is, is as we talk about this concept of what it means to actually grasp God's vision for our life, what our brother just said is really the essence of the truth. And it's this. It's not about what we're doing. It's about, God, what are you doing and how can we get in on it? You're, you're sovereign. You're God. You're king. How do we get in on it? 
One of the ways that we're talking about doing that around here, just to make some things somewhat, oh, I guess cohesive and somewhat simple for us, is the concept of what would it look like as we talk about this concept of grasping God's vision for our life. When you look at the Scriptures, you'll see that God in the Scriptures has a redemptive vision. He has a communal vision for us. And He has kind of a missional or a service vision. So we're journeying together into these three areas. Now remember, I want to make sure to really talk about this uh, real, real, real quick. I wish I could pay more attention to it, but I can't. But a journey is, let, let me talk up to you about journey. A journey is just that. A journey is different than some of the ways that you and I have been brought up in the church to think about our spiritual lives. When we talk about taking a journey into understanding the gospel, okay, we're not necessarily talking about a destination that we want to get to. Okay, many of us have kind of this idea in our spiritual lives that we're kind of climbing this mountain, if you will. And by the time we get together and we read the word and by the time we pray and by the time we worship and by the time we we spend time one on one in the word, you know, with our devos or quiet time or whatever you want to say, then we can do all these things. We get to the top of that mountain and doggone it. We just plant that flag up there. Got it. Been there. Done that. Right? That's called destination theology. And the the concept here that what I want to make sure that we really understand is we understand more understanding of a journey theology. I'm going somewhere. Listen to this now. I'm going somewhere. I'm gathering a band of brothers and sisters. Sisters. I'm gathering a band of brothers and sisters around me. Now follow now. And we are going on a lifelong journey to understand a person. Our leader and King Jesus. He's real. He actually lived. He actually died. He actually rose again. He is, as Walt Whitman wrote, O Captain, my Captain. By the way, Whitman's first part of his poem goes like this. The ship has weathered every rack. The prize we sought is won. The port is near. The bells I hear. The people all exulting. While follow eyes the steady keel. The vessel grim and daring. But oh heart, heart, heart. Oh the bleeding drops of red. Where on the deck my captain lies. Fallen, cold, and dead. We have Captain, oh, Captain, and he did fall cold and dead on the cross of Calvary. But our message is not that, is it? Just that. It doesn't stop there, does it? Because he was victorious. He's a God of victory. He's our champion. He is our Captain, oh, Captain. We serve him. He lives. He lives in you. He lives in me. We serve him today. In order for us to begin to understand this Jesus that I just talked with you about, we must begin to excavate a little bit about what the scriptures say as we talk about the gospel. There's so much to talk about here. As we talk about the gospel, we really, I want you to kind of begin to understand three really watershed themes in the scripture. And the watershed themes in the scripture are going to be creation, right? 
There's obviously what we believe about creation has massive ramifications for our lives. What we believe about what we would call the fall and what we believe about redemption, creation, fall and redemption. That doesn't come from me, by the way. It comes from a a real smart theologian by the name of John Calvin. And I'm not um, claiming to come up with that at all, but it's a really good way to understand the themes of scripture. So today, what I want to talk with us about is I want to talk with us a little bit about what took place at the fall as we try to take this journey into the gospel. I think it's very important for us, despite where many of us are at, as we think about the gospel and we think about how the gospel has been communicated with us, I think one of the great things that we need to get in touch with is we need to get in touch with what happened at the fall. And this doesn't have just, it's not just an indigenous message to the people here who may not know Jesus today. It's a great message for us as Christ followers. Somebody said this to me this last week, I thought it was beautiful. They said, it is possible that something is so true that it needs to be spoken to us every day. And isn't that true? The gospel is so true that it literally needs to be spoken to us every day in all of its ways. In all of its ways. It's, it's so very true. Turn to Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Genesis 3 is the, what I talked to you about, the watershed scripture kind of for the fall. Let's see what's going on here. This is after Jesus uh, had created the heavens and the earth. And after he had created man and woman, he had placed them in the garden. And he had given them instructions. And the specific instructions that he had given them were, please do not eat of any of the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they disobeyed. And this right here is how that story unfolds for us. Let's look at it. Follow along with me. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say. You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you will, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse four, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And this is the beginning of, by the way, uh, if you ever want to find out what's going on inside of your heart, when you want to talk about our, the, the immense propensity in our lives and desire to hide is starts right here. It's just, it's, it's, and it's, it's so true in all of our lives. It's, it's, it's one of the real fleshly parts of us, even as believers, that it's one of these remnants that's there that really, really hinders us, I think, as believers. They covered themselves. Look what God does though. How, look how he moves with them. What he says to them. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord. Can you imagine what that sound would have been like? As he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, Where are you? A beautiful picture, by the way, of the movement of the Lord into our lives. God, even though he set up the way that it was going to go, he was going to move back in towards his children, towards this couple. Did God know where Adam was? One thing. Was it a mystery? Was he behind, was he behind tree Y? And God goes, oh man, where's tree Y? Did he know? It's not a trick question. Yeah. I mean, he, he does know. And he, by the way, he knows the tree you're hiding behind or me. He, he, he knows our, our, our hiding places. Right? Did you remember playing hide and go seek as a kid? Do you remember trying to find the ultimate, most unbelievable, phenomenal hiding spot so that nobody could ever find you? And you thought it was the greatest thing in the world to hear your brothers and sisters tramping around the house looking for, and then finally getting to that point of exhaustion where they looked at everybody and said, ah, forget it, okay, you won. And then you walked out sheepishly going, oh, you know, remember that? It's the situation where, <laughs> where Adam probably did think, well, maybe we can hide from God. Maybe we can act like we're hiding from God. And God says, where are you? So what did God want to know with that question? Why would he have asked that question? Help me. Why would he say, where are you? Thoughts? What's that? So we would realize where we were. So that we would actually have to say out of our mouth, I'm behind tree Y. And it's really ugly behind here. Where are you? He says he in verse 10, he says, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Who's the theologian, uh, theologian who said, beware of the, of the God who uh, isn't afraid to ask hard questions? This is what's going on here. The man said, the woman put here, here with me. <laughs> Ladies are getting special treatment today in the church. The woman put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And that's what we do, guys. We're just going to blame it on the, on the girlfriend or the wife. Well, honey, you know I, I struggle with pornography. It's because you don't give me enough sex. And so because of that, I have to go down to the cabaret. I, I've had needs. I have issues. I'm a man. Do you actually, do you know that I have people that have told that to me, that have said that to me? Do, you, do, do we even realize in here, as, you, as I even told you that story, you probably sat for one minute and went, what a dinghead that guy was for saying that. But guess what? We do the exact same thing. Our powers of rationalization are like savant. 
Do you get that? We could go to like Juilliard for rationalization. Do you understand that? Do you understand our powers of blame? Have you ever went to an AA meeting and had somebody that just comes to the front of the meeting and looks at everybody and says, well, I'm here tonight because my, my, I want to tell you about my mom and dad and what a problem my childhood was. And they, they can walk through their situation and by the time you're done, all you think about is, man, this guy's just, he's just a kind of a blobby victim. Isn't that how we are? It's her fault or it's this fault. It's a big time indicator, by the way, of our sinful condition. Big time. Verse 13, then the Lord God, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. The devil made me do that. Separate from me. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, very interesting scripture. By the way, look there in verse 14. Cursed are you above the livestock. Here's the curse. Here comes the space that takes place as a result of our fallen, our fallen, the, the fallen state that we're in as a result of our sin. Here it comes. Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. He's speaking here to Satan. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now look at here in verse 15. And I will put enmity, space between you and the woman. And look what he says, and between your offspring and her offspring. He's basically speaking there about the world is divided. The divided in the world is going to be those who are faithful to God and those who are lost. Between your offspring and her offspring. But then, then let me ask you, who's spoken about here in verse 15? He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who's the he? Right. So already at the beginning of time, already after man and woman had failed, already in the deeps, deepest, darkest deception and rationalization and hiddenness and ugliness of this time, Jesus decide, or God decides to speak about his son, Jesus, who one day, it's in his great plan, or one day is going to come and crush the serpent's head. It's a beautiful, beautiful prophetic word and a great, great word of hope for you and I. And a great word of hope for you, if you don't know the Lord, even sitting here today, if you don't have Jesus inside of your life, know this, that God has provided a son who has died on a cross. He has died for our sin. He was raised, and he now lives in heaven, awaiting one day to come back. We await his return. Our hope is in that Lord, who eventually, yes, will crush the serpent's head. Sin entered the world through one man, Adam. Follow along with me here. I don't mean to be too theological, but I think it's kind of important that we cover some real basic ground. And then I have, I have an extra special thing that I want to read out of a real favorite book I've been reading this week. Sin entered the world through one man. Because of Adam and Eve's first sin, all of us, when we came out of our mother's womb, are stamped sinners. Now, if you've heard this now for the thousandth time, listen to it for thousand one. This isn't about when we came out of our mother's womb, we do sinful things. No, the Bible says that we are sinners and that we are eternally separated from God and that God's wrath is upon us as sinners. Because of Adam's first sin, the correct or high language here is the imputation of Adam's sin to us as we have come out of our mother's womb. We're a sinner. The effect of sin, the effect of sin is that every part of man, his mind, his will, 
His emotions and flesh have been corrupted by sin. In other words, sin affects all areas of our being, including who we are and what we do. It penetrates to the very core of our being so that everything is tainted by sin. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. Isaiah 64, 6. The truth, the truth, the truth. The Bible paints a very ugly and pervasive picture of our sin. Our sin is so strong that it makes us hostile towards God, the Bible says. Our sin is so strong that we are actually held captive by a love for sin. Our sin is so strong that the Bible says in Romans, we can't even please God. Our sin is so strong that we can't even seek after God in our sinful state. That's how strong, that's how deep the hole goes. Romans 3.10 There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. Listen to this. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Our sin is so strong that it has put us into a hopelessly dead state. Have you seen the movie The Green Mile? If you haven't seen it, see it. The book is better, written by Stephen King. He's not one of my favorite authors. But this book is good. And it has, it has some eternal themes in the book. And in this book, there's this group of men who work on death row. And it's really a story about them, about how they live and how they execute people who have been accused of capital crimes. And there's a scene, there's a couple scenes, I want to give you two today, but this first one is this. There's a scene where the guards are are transporting one of these accused criminals into cell block 8 where I, I believe it's cell block 8 where they're going to die and they have to they have to sit there on what's called the mile and they call it the green mile because the floor is kind of a a color green and they get this prisoner out of the truck and they're transporting this prisoner and one of the guards grabs him by the arm and says out loud for everybody in the prison yard to hear, dead man walking. Dead man walking here, dead man walking. And you, when you think about that and you, I, I, when I was watching that, I thought, just the unbelievable accusation over this man's life over what this person had to be thinking about this time, had to be fairly strong. I mean, you already know you're dying, but then to say that out loud in front of everybody, to say, dead man walking. The Bible says that that's what we are before Christ. That we're literally like dead man walking. Ephesians 2 says this, as for you, listen now, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, at this point in the sermon, if you're, if you're following along with this, the point of this ultimate, like, like ultimately for me, would be for you to walk out today thinking this, how great a salvation. You follow what I'm, ask, what, what I'm asking you? The point for you to be would be, are you kidding me? We're, we're that sinful. 
Are you kidding me that I, I was laid dead? I was in the ground. I was in a casket. Are you kidding me that I was the dead man walking? That I was, I was that hostile towards God that I couldn't even think about the Lord. Are you kidding me? How, yet in, in the midst of my life, God intervened in the garden of my hiddenness and He approached me and He wrecked into this time and space in my life and He pulled me out of that place. How great, how great a salvation. That's what you should be thinking about today. Because as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You gratify the cravings of our sinful nature and follow its desires and thoughts. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been what? Saved. Before I get on to the final illustration, I wanted to talk with you. I think this is very appropriate because it really hit me this week when I was trying to think about and trying to walk on this theme of sin, trying to study a little bit. I want to read you a couple things. Listen to this. Neither the language of medicine nor, nor of law is adequate substitution for the language of sin. This is by, uh, by the way, uh, the reason for God by Tim Keller. If you haven't got, uh, you know, bought the book, definitely get it. Neither the language of medicine nor, the, nor of law is adequate substitution for the language of sin. Contrary to the medical model, we are not entirely at the mercy of our maladies. The choice is to enter into the process of repentance. Contrary to the legal model, the essence of sin is not primarily the violation of laws, but a wrecked relationship with God, one another, and the whole created order. It's been wrecked. Let me give you one more. Very interesting. Really hit me hard this week because I, I go to this place a lot. See if, see if it will for you. Sin is the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself to get an identity apart from him. What does this mean? Everyone gets their identity, their sense of being distinct and valuable from somewhere or something. Kierkegaard's assertion that human beings were made not only to believe in God in some general way, but to love him supremely, center their lives on him above anything else, and build their very identities on him. Anything other than that is sin. Most people think of sin primarily as breaking divine rules. But, but Kierkegaard knows that the very first of the Ten Commandments is to have no other gods before me. So according to the Bible, the primary way to define sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. Do you follow that? It's not just the bad things that we think about or breaking the law, but it could be actually making the good things that we have in life into ultimate things. In other words, the good things that we have, that we would place that like another God in front of us before that Lord, before our ultimate Lord. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship with God. In the movie Rocky, The title's character's girlfriend asks him why it is so important for him to go the distance in the boxing match. He says this, then I'll know I'm not a bum. 
He replies, in the movie Chariots of Fire, one of the main characters explains why he works so hard at running the 100-yard dash for the Olympics. And he says that when each race begins, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Both of these men looked to athletic achievement as the defining force that gave meaning to their lives. And that's just as much sin as breaking the law. Do you follow? And that's what I do. I could actually be able today to stand here and confess to you that what I could claim that would define me would be the fact that I could call myself, let's say, a good teacher. I want to be a good teacher. What do I do then when I get home, and there's many Sundays like this, that I get home and go, man, that sucked. (laughs) Think about this now. Think about this. I'm going to take that and I'm going to say that is what's going to give me significance. That is what's giving me meaning. By the way, when I'm doing that, I am completely turning my my back on my ultimate creator's plan for significance for me, which is to look to him and to follow him and to rest in him and to understand my sonship in him. It's possible for me to actually say this. What about you? What is What is it that's there in your life? It's a good thing to think about. Finally, the green mile, the best part of the green mile is this little mouse in it called Mr. Jingles. These men who are gathered around in this prison cell, there is a Frenchman there by the name of Edward Delacroix. They call him Del. And there's a big man that has been brought in by the name of John Coffey. And John Coffey, for some reason, has the ability to heal people. He's kind of like the Jesus figure in the movie. They have a guard that works, works, which by the way, there's a lot of irony in this statement if you've seen the movie. There's a guard, the evil guard. His name's Percy Wetmore. They call him Wetmore because he peed his pants in the movie. Somehow, this little mouse named Mr. Jingles, they all befriend him, and this mouse becomes a friend with Edward Delacroix, Del. And he learns how to spin a little, you know, uh, what is it, little thimble things with thread, and he just is his friend, and, you know, and it's kind of this cool relationship, and all the guards think it's, they think it's awesome because Ed, Edward Delacroix is going to die. So they're kind of going, you know, we can do anything in the world to make this guy happy. Just, if it's a mouse, it's great. They call him Mr. Jingles and they tell him that Mr. when he goes to die, he's gonna, Mr. Jingles is gonna go down to Florida and be in a mouse circus. It's just, um, it's, it's unbelievable, the story. So there's this moment that comes out where the mouse crawls from out underneath the, the jail. Percy Wetmore, the evil guard, steps on the mouse and kills it. Right? And everybody is up in arms until John Coffey says, give the mouse to me. And with his healing power, he takes the mouse with the little tail sticking out of his fingers and he breathes life into that mouse. And he gets all done. He lets the mouse and the mouse go back over to Dell's cell. I'm the mouse. I have been crushed Bloody down to the ground by the, 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 the absolute weight of sin in my life. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. 
And even when now that I have my Savior, I need Him more and more. How great a salvation. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for you. And by you confessing and receiving the life of Jesus, He will breathe new life into your life, which promises us eternal life. And even a life, a lot different of a life here. It's a good thing for us to think about. Let's pray. God, it's a weighty subject. It's um, it's hard for some of us to realize, especially if we if if we have these ears, that it's difficult for us to get out of Sunday school when we think about this topic. And um, Lord, uh, many of us who would call themselves sons and daughters here this morning, please just hear us say thank you for your grace. Thank you for crashing into the garden of our lives and. And giving us Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sin. We understand that someone had to die. Lord, I pray this morning, and I just really, really want to pray that your spirit would be over this place, and that if there would be people here that uh, do not know you, that even today, as a result of the voice and the drawing and the and the conviction that you've brought in their life, they would they would repent. I thank you for uh, our little church here. I thank you for my friends. I thank you that it's a place that we can even talk about your gospel with freedom. We pray this in your name. Amen.